Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. For most Americans, Thomas Paine is the radical Englishman and former tax collector who published Common Sense in early 1776. His claim that hereditary monarchy was an absurdity and that the cause of America was in great measure the cause of all mankind galvanized American rebels into thinking more seriously about independence than they had only a few months before. Payne would go on to publish The American Crisis and other writings during the American Revolution before trying to find his place in the new United States after the war. But in the early 1790s, Payne took up his pen once again, this time to defend the French Revolution from its British critics, including his frenemy, Edmund Burke. The result was a two-part work entitled Rights of Man, a treatise that imagined a world that in some ways looks very similar to our own. On today's show, Dr. Frances Chu joins me to chat about her new guidebook to Payne's Rights of Man, published by Routledge in 2020. Chu teaches at the New School, and she is a historian of 18th and 19th century Gothic horror, as well as British reform and radicalism. Her guidebook is a handy tool for understanding Payne's ideas and their origins, with some far older than you might imagine. So don't be a Summer Soldier, and let's read Thomas Paine's Rights of Man with Dr. Francis Chu. Well, Francis, tell us a little bit about Thomas Paine's life between the end of the American Revolution and the outbreak of the French Revolution. We, we meet this guy, at least in early American history in the Revolutionary War, as the guy who writes Common Sense, the American Crisis. And then after the war, he kind of disappears, I think, from the American imagination until he resurfaces in the French Revolution, where he once again finds a revolution that excites him. What's going on in those intervening years between the end of the American War and the beginning of the wars of the French Revolution? But this time, he's sort of like a, you know, he's become a gentleman of leisure. For some time, he's been requesting compensation for all of his quote-unquote volunteer work, you know, like writing Common Sense, I guess, uh, writing that, and all of these other writings like on public good. And he's got his farm in New Rochelle, and he buys a small house in Bordentown, New Jersey. He gets involved in sort of inventing things like the smoke with candle. Payne gets really involved in trying to come up with a single-span iron bridge. So he's working on this for about, you know, Two or three years, he gets one gentleman from England, uh, John Hall, to work with him on this. And it actually stirs quite a bit of excitement. And he has this displayed in, you know, the state house and everything. People are impressed by it, but it really goes nowhere. So this is where Benjamin Franklin suggests him that he go to France. This is 1787. Tells him to go see public works at that time. Louis XVI's ministers. He meets Lafayette, Thomas Jefferson, who was an ambassador of France at this time. He's showing the bridges. He's also going to England as well to see his parents. And he hasn't realized that his, you know, his father has died. And so he's over there and he meets like the, the leaders of the opposition, including, you know, Edmund Burke. Edmund Burke at this time is just really just helping him trying to find a site for the bridge. What fascinates me about Payne in this period is he's like so many other people who are trying to figure out how to live in the new world that the American Revolution creates. He's, I mean, he was always kind of a guy, right, who, who would jump from opportunity to opportunity, but he seems discombobulated or dislodged or searching for something meaningful in the post-war period. And it's, it's you know, it's really interesting that this, uh, <laughs> speaking of bridges, like he, he sets out to, to build, as you say, a peerless bridge. Uh, and then he ends up bridging the gap in some ways between the American Revolution and the French. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very good way of looking at it. 
tell us a little bit about Burke because you just brought in Edmund Burke into the conversation. Edmund Burke is often thought or sometimes thought of as the you know the great quote unquote conservative Irish member of parliament. He writes uh, in favor of the American Revolution, but as we'll talk about, he's decidedly against the French Revolution. Sounds like their relationship then starts over this bridge project. At this time, Burke actually has a reputation as a liberal. I mean, he was a Whig and he was still mostly in favor of getting rid of the Testing Corporation Act. He was against capital punishment. He was also opposed to slavery. I mean, he was basically what you would call a, I guess, more of a center, center-leaning liberal, not like far left, like Payne, for instance. And he was the one who was also trying to diminish the king's influence. And at the same time, also broaden to some extent enfranchisement, not as much as Payne, but is it better to classify him then as a, in a sense, a political liberal as we might describe them today, but then, as I think as we'll talk about, kind of a cultural conservative in terms of adhering to tradition? At this time, he would have been perceived, I think, as sort of a moderate liberal, especially since he started turning against religious toleration for Protestant descent. But at this time, I mean, he's still moderately liberal. But then when the French Revolution comes along, he becomes a sort of like full-fledged conservative. Although it's worth noting at this time, too, that Burke always did have conservative leaning with the American Revolution. He basically said that, you know, these colonists had always sort of governed themselves. They deserve to continue doing so. Oh, sure, sure. So that was his rationale, right? So yeah, you could say that he was cultural conservative. But then when the French Revolution comes, that's when it really becomes interesting because right after the... Right after the fall of the Bastille, people in Britain were actually very excited about this. You know, oh, wow, the French are finally catching up with, you know, modernization. They're coming, they're finally becoming more open-minded. It is no longer going to be as absolutist and despotic. And so at this time, uh, you have Richard Price, who was a very famous Protestant descendant, celebrating the French Revolution at this commemoration of the Glorious Revolution of 1688. He said, this is a really great event. And Burke is shocked by it. But also at the same time, I think he might have also been shocked by Payne's reaction as well, too. Because Payne was basically trying to urge him to get a revolution started in England. And Burke is, no, we can't have this at all. (laughs) We've got a good system here. Let's not muck that up. Exactly. Exactly. Reflections on the Revolution in France, it is the attempt to say that, no, this is the wrong thing for France. He goes on to say that the French had a good thing going on. They should not have wrecked it. So he compares the whole government to this old castle that doesn't need to be struck down, but just modified, just fixed up here and there, repaired here and there. And he goes on to complain about the king's powers being stripped away from them, the abolition of titles amongst the, the nobility. If they lose their political influence, We will no longer have properly learned men taking over France. And he goes on to talk about how it was proper for France to have a state church. Because if he didn't, everyone would run amok. He basically says that, you know, you really need to retain traditions as is, or otherwise it's going to descend into chaos. And I think in the short term, you know, we could say that Burke was correct because they had the reign of terror. He was shrewd enough to see what was going on. I mean, he could see what was going to happen in the next 20, 30 years. Maybe just to sum up then, with his position, with Burke's position on the American Revolution, what he's arguing in his sense is that that Americans are claiming rights that they've already they've had for a long time, that, that it's been their tradition to govern themselves for a long time. You know, there's this old idea of, of salutary neglect and they've that they were essentially left alone to manage their own interests. Whereas in the right. French Revolution, 
it always had a certain degree of independence. Right. That's a certain correct. degree of autonomy. And then with the French Revolution, he's you know, he's saying, listen, you can make tweaks, but if you overthrow the entire order, chaos will ensue, and who knows where this is going to end. Yeah, that's correct. So Burke writes this reflections on the French Revolution, and I gather that his old buddy Thomas Paine is not too terribly excited about this. What What is Paine's reaction? He's very surprised by it. He says, I'm exceedingly sorry I have anything to do with him. There are several other people who were responding. The onslaught against Burke is just so is furious because the first person right was actually Mary Wollstonecraft, you know, the first modern feminist. Catherine Macaulay, the chemist and Protestant dissenter, Joseph Priestley, you know, a whole team of other people. And then Payne comes along, actually, in some ways, you could say relatively late in the game because he comes, I mean, his response is in early 1791. He tries to refute Burke almost point by point. So he begins by criticizing Burke's criticism of Richard Price. And in here, this is basically where Burke has said that Richard Price is talking nonsense. When the glorious revolution happened, people were just obeying the rules. And that's why they got William and Mary over rather than, you know, keeping James II. That this is not a popular vote. This is just part of the rules. Is this pain in the first part of Rights of Man? Yeah, this statement by Bertha is heavily refuted by almost everyone. But Payne probably makes the best case. This, this is where he goes on to say that just because these rules held by for, you know, 1688 doesn't mean that they still hold today. And so he makes this big point about how everything needs to be modernized. You cannot have these rules from the 17th or 15th century or anything else governing Britain. It's like a dead taking over the living. He really gets into the subject of rights. The subject of rights is really not new at all. It, you know, if you really want to look at it, it goes all the way back to creation. And God gave everyone their rights. And the only distinction that he ever made was between male and female. What he's trying to do is say that the subject of rights is not a modern, newfangled innovation, but it's been around for centuries. As you say, it goes. Uh, he makes the case that it goes all the way back to time immemorial. But then, of course, there are these moments in English history that he can draw on to point out like, well, you know, the, this peasants revolt, you know, several centuries earlier was a clear indication that uh, people of a lowly sort, especially people of a lowly sort, had rights that had to be respected and that you can't just countermand them by adhering to quote unquote traditional values that maintain the few against the many. He does mention peasants' revolt in the second part of Rights of Man, and he says that these men are actually more important than the barons who defied, you know, King John and the Magna Carta. That's really fascinating because the Magna Carta 1215 is often seen as kind of the bedrock of or the origins of our, a part of our, I would say, constitutional democracy, both in the United Kingdom and the United States. Uh, that 1215 is seen as a kind of city upon a hill, you might say. But uh, 1381 then sounds like, at least in Paine's estimation, that it's equally, if not more critical moment in which Englishmen asserted their rights in ways that uh, Americans and later Englishmen would soon follow. Yeah, yeah. Paine writes rights of man in two parts, and we've kind of gotten into the first part a little bit, but can you give us a, a little bit more of a sense of what's in that part one? And, and then I'd love to talk about the publication aspect of it, because that's a fascinating dynamic too. Paine's writing about the rights, that everyone has God-given rights. He goes on to say that this is why the French were correct in getting rid of the titles, because what do these titles really mean? What is the true distinction between, say, a duke and a marquis? I mean, what is their value? When you have an aristocracy, you really only have one heir. He basically sucks up all the sources. 
Payne talks about the fact that they get everything. And then not only that, you have all the younger siblings, especially the men who are not really provided for, quote unquote, they have to get jobs in the government, which are very, very well compensated. You know, what a waste of money that these people who are just born to the right families get these positions. So basically the government is supporting these kinds of people. And he goes on from there to talk about the church. Burke had talked about church being important would stabilize society at least. Payne goes on to say that this whole idea of one church claiming privileges was just really was ridiculous. He goes beyond the Protestant dissenters who talk about the need for religious toleration. Payne goes on to say that the idea of toleration of religion is really not for men to decide. It's for God. What's interesting to me is it, it sounds like a lot of what Payne is interrogating and criticizing is the relationship between the social structure, which is deeply tied to a landed hierarchy, a landed class, the way that that is entangled with the government and the two kind of perpetuate each other or, or in a sense designed to. But then there's this also this religious element where England is a Protestant nation. The king is the head of the Protestant Anglican Church or the Church of England. And all of these three elements mutually reinforce each other and kind of keep, as you say, everyone in their quote unquote proper place, thereby prohibiting them or inhibiting people to assert the rights of man in a very real sense. Is that is that kind of what's going on here? Mm -hmm. Right. I think Payne was already seeing this whole idea of the, what we call the 1% dominating society and the government to benefit themselves. And he sees the French sort of abolishing that system, at least getting rid of it or questioning it. Although what's interesting, I, you know, when he was in America, you could already see this system being built up. Because if you think about it, you know, almost all the men who are dominating Congress in America at this time were, you know, were landed elites. They were very wealthy. There were many like, you know, slave owners, Thomas Jefferson, uh, Henry Lawrence. You really do wonder what Payne thought about this. And if, if he ever looked at it from that light that, you know, hey, America is actually also being built by these elites. Yeah, so he sees like a less stratified society, even though, as you point out, right, people like Washington, Jefferson, Monroe, New York merchants, uh, you know, those kind of folks, they've got disproportionate economic and social power, therefore political power. But then he's liking what's happening in France because they're wiping out all these estates and there's like a radical leveling going on where people are put on, at least he thinks, theoretically equal terms and that they can better then express or maintain and defend their rights in a more equitable fashion. So Payne writes this first part. Why does he decide to write two parts and not one big book. I'm not sure if he actually intended, or many of us are not sure if he actually intended to do a second part, but what changes things around is the fact that in France, in 1791, actually in June 1791, Louis XVI decided to escape from France's family. They were all disguised as servants, and they were caught. And this pretty much signaled to everyone that he was not living up to his team. I mean, he was not supporting the revolution. And this is where you begin to have this question in the back. You know, do you really need to have a monarchy? Payne criticizes monarchy a lot in there. But, you know, he praises Louis XVI for trying to reform things. So he's not absolutely questioning monarchy. But when you get to part two, that's when he really leans into it and says that this is the most ridiculous system ever. And a representative government is much, much better. In common sense, he was already criticizing, you know, against the premises of hereditary government. But he was really making this argument towards the Americans. And here he's directing it mostly to the British. That is probably just the biggest distinction. 
And he goes on to say, for instance, that, you know, you can have a system where you have a king who is stupid, crazy, and despotic. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe all at the same time. Yeah, and all at the same time, right. Although I guess some some might, I think, argue that, hey, it's possible for a democracy to have men of the same, you know, the three, uh, (laughs) to embody the three same categories. (laughs) Uh, questionable leadership is not uh, the domain simply of hereditary monarchies. That's that is for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so he talks about that, and he, you know, he talks about the fact that this really started because of the military system. And at the same time, many of these wars that have occurred throughout the ages have always been for the purpose of supporting whichever monarch was on the throne or getting a new one on the throne. You know, one or the other. So Payne publishes part one. Who's reading it and what's the reaction? At this time, it was criticized by many, even the Whigs, I'd say. Uh, but then, you know, the radicals, I'd say, like his friends, uh, William Godwin, Mary Will Stonecraft, many of them thought Payne's work was absolutely brilliant. You had these groups reading Payne and being very enthusiastic about it. But at the same time, it's priced at three shillings, which is about... Um, Three days of work for a skilled trade. It's a lot of money. However, because of the lax copyright laws, many newspapers are reprinting like large excerpts from Reitzman. And there are probably some publications which may have reprinted the whole thing over a series of you know installments. So part one is a price that you say something over three shillings, which is several days' wages for the common laborer. So it's in the hands of the elite, the kind of the people that Payne is criticizing and not in the hands of folks who ostensibly to he's speaking to. But then part two, I gather, then has a lower price. And then that... Yes, a much lower price. It is now sixpence. I mean, it's very affordable. Then he decides to make part one sixpence as well, too. So it is much easier access. Ah, that's much better. But I think that with part two, the most outstanding part is the fact that he makes these proposals for universal suffrage. And really what we would say like a public welfare system, you know, like providing for the poor. And he wanted a system where it would be nationalized. So no matter where you lived, you could have some kind of stable system of support. And he goes on to make the case that young couples should get some assistance when they get married, because it's very hard to start a family. And he goes on to say that you should not have men and women working until their 70s or 80s. So he wanted to propose a system where men and women would get six pounds a year if they were in their 50s, and then 10 pounds a year over 60. And he's saying that all this money, if you wonder where it's coming from, it's going to be coming from your taxes. So like when you pay into them in whatever form, you will get all this back when you hit 50. What I find fascinating is that Payne, in many ways, sounds like he's anticipating the modern British welfare state with pensions and health protections and things like that. But that's not going to fly in the 18th century. And the fact that he publishes part two at a lower price and then has part one at a lower price as well, I would imagine then it's in the hands of more people. Is that when the Yorkshire pudding really hits the fan amongst the elite? It terrifies them, to say the least. I think it was around in May 21st, 1792, just about three months after it was published. 
he puts out a proclamation against, you know, seditious writings and then has Cain charged with um, seditious writings. They have negative biographies written about him, written for the common man. So they're all criticizing how, you know, this is full of garbage and he's full of class envy and everything. And at the same time, they have all these local magistrates and church and king mobs burning effigies. And this has turned into like a very festive event where, you know, you would go burn his effigy and get, you know, food and punch and whatnot. <laughs> that sounds like a party. They were, in a sense, bribing people to attend these events. It's hard to say how many people actually opposed it and how many were supporting it secretly. So am I hearing you right then? Then there was a, a kind of attempt to manage the optics of the situation, in a sense, uh, and use these kind of fun parties to make the point that Ping was really unpopular and that most people didn't agree with what he was saying and it's all just a bunch of horse hockey. Exactly. Right. That's exactly. I mean, some of these burnings are really outrageous. There's one where they got someone to scream while he was being pounded. <laughs> like to simulate him being being executed or something like and that. And burned. They started spying on him and, you know, following him around. And I think at one point, he was at a party. William Blake was there and he basically warned Payne that if you go home, you're a dead man. Now, by then, Payne had already been invited to become sort of like an MP in France. So he decides to flee to France at this time. And... The day that he left, the authorities actually tried to arrest him. Meanwhile, he goes to France and he's absolutely celebrated. I mean, it's a completely different world. <laughs> a few less bonfires and effigies there, it sounds like. Right. <laughs> well, Francis, you've written a guidebook to Thomas Paine's Rights of Man. Why write a guidebook? I'd always been interested in Paine, I guess, you know, since my doctoral dissertation. And then I read John Keane's biography of Thomas Paine. I was just completely blown away. You know, I've got to teach a course on Paine. So I've been teaching, I taught Paine for about several years, about maybe like six years before I got invited by Harvey K to write a guidebook on the rights of man for Routland. When I was teaching a course, I was already thinking that I'd gotten a good idea of what kind of questions that students were asking about rights to man and about other works which were published in this period. So what I basically wanted to do was to show the evolution of rights, how it developed through the centuries, from 1140 or so through the civil wars, and you know, to show how the idea of political rights evolved, political rights, as well as the concept of, say, economic justice. I was interested in seeing how many of the ideas that Paine discussed had sort of evolved through the centuries. Did Paine have any awareness of these writers? I like the fact that this project came about in part because of your experiences in the classroom. And then so I'm wondering how you hope people will use this guidebook, either in their classes or just on their own as they're studying the rights of man uh, in their own time. I want to show how the idea of rights evolved. And I also wanted to show how, for instance, people became interested in universal male suffrage, how they became more interested in inequality in all of these issues, and to show how Payne dealt with them. And so I just wanted to show basically how he related to all of these, you know, all of these concepts. The last chapter does talk about how Payne is still relevant in today's age. There's one point where Payne says the system is still corrupt and it still has not changed. And in this book, I wanted to show, you know, talk about how Payne developed from this tradition of questioning to, uh, of looking into inequality, looking into ways of making living more possible, and also showing how I think it's still relevant in today's day and age. More conversations after the break. Hi, everyone. I'm Jim Ambusky. And I'm Jeanette Patrick. 
Now, normally, you know me as the host of Conversations at the Washington Library. And on a few occasions, I've co-hosted. We're also the co-creators and co-writers of the Center for Digital History's newest podcast called Intertwined, the enslaved community at George Washington's Mount Vernon. Intertwined tells the story of the more than 577 people enslaved by George and Martha Washington at Mount Vernon, told through the biographies of Sambo Anderson, Davy Gray, William Lee, Kate... Ona Judge, Nancy Carter Quander, Edmund Parker, Caroline Branham, and the Washingtons, this eight-part podcast series explores the lives and labors of Mount Vernon's enslaved community and how we interpret slavery at the historic site today. Intertwined is narrated by Brenda Parker and is a production of the Mount Vernon Ladies Association and CD Squared. Search for Intertwined, the enslaved community at George Washington's Mount Vernon on your favorite podcast app or visit georgewashingtonpodcast.com. All right, Francis, what book are you reading right now? I am actually reading The Wasp Establishment by E. Digby Baltzell. <laughs> it's really fascinating because you were saying that, you know, we need to have an aristocracy, but an aristocracy that is open to everyone. It's really fascinating because, again, it really goes back to what Payne is talking about here. Who is the author you most admire? I really enjoy Stephen King. For historians, I like Robert Darnton a lot. And I also enjoy a lot of Harvey K as well, too, because it really knows how to make it so relevant to today's day and age. Um, and then there's like a lot of horror. I just finished reading um, Robert Marasco's Burnt Offering. It was only about like 205 pages. I thought, oh, I want this to go on. This is like really so exciting. And there's like so much that is, um, I mean, he really knows how to create chills without blood, guts, and, you know, gore. It, it's really fascinating. Some good tips for the upcoming uh, fall season then. Yes. <laughs> what is the most exciting document you've ever found over the course of your research? I think one of the ones that I was most excited to read was James Murray's Sermons to Acid. He was supposed to be the most incendiary writer before Thomas Paine came along. There was actually some places where he's probably even more daring than Paine himself. But basically, his first line is, um, you know, if asses preach to men, why may not mankind preach to the ass kind? This is where he's talking about how uh, taxes on the poor are very unfair and where the wealthy are paying very little. This copy was actually Joseph Johnson, the radical publisher's copy. And he writes in places, this would get me in trouble. This cannot be published. <laughs> There's line upon line upon line of that. And it was just really fascinating to see that. Okay. And last question. At the end of the day, what do you hope folks take away from your work? This particular book, um, I mean, I'm hoping that people will see of course, how much research I put in it, which is basically by, you know, seeing how Payne did relate to all of these earlier writers. I guess you could say is that I basically want to dispel any misconceptions that were associated with Payne. Well, Francis, thank you very much. This has been great. Well, thank you, Jim. You've been a wonderful host. Thanks for joining us today on Conversations, a production of the Center for Digital History at the Washington Library. I'm Jim Ambusky, your host and producer. Jeanette Patrick offered editorial assistance with additional support provided by Mount Vernon's Media and Communications Department. Our music is Witch's Brew by C.K. Martin. Be sure to subscribe to Conversations on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your favorite programs. If you like the show, please rate and review it on your favorite podcast app. Find this and other episodes by heading over to our website at georgewashingtonpodcast.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. 